Well, I want to invite you this morning to turn with me to the 12th chapter of John's Gospel. John chapter 12. And this morning we will begin our reading in verse 27. As we do so, I would encourage you to stand with me out of respect for the authority of God's Word. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 27. Jesus says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it thundered. Others said, An angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from this earth, will draw all people to myself. Would you join me in prayer? Father, what an amazing journey it has been to follow the footsteps of your Son. And as we move closer to the cross, I pray that you would continue to fill our hearts with wonder uh, and with joy. God, I pray that you would guard us, especially those of us who have been walking with Jesus for many, many years, that we would steer clear from apathy, that we would steer clear from thinking that we have it all figured out, all put together. Rather, I pray that each one of us, boys and girls, men and women, would be captured by the wonder of the gospel, that we would be captured by the majesty, the person, and the work of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God, would you uh, do a, a marvelous work in hearts and lives today? God, we pray for people who are here who are not yet followers of Jesus, that perhaps today would be the day of salvation. We commit this time to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. From start to finish, the scriptures emphasize the crucial significance of Christ's sacrifice as an offering for the sins of all who would ever believe. A substitutionary offering that satisfied or propitiated the wrath of God on behalf of the elect. So said John MacArthur several years ago, and it is the tone and the, the mindset of the Lord Jesus Christ, the very mission, I believe, that Dr. MacArthur catches in those particular words. And so I've entitled the message this morning, The Mindset and the Mission of Jesus. As we dig deeper into the mindset and into the mission of Jesus, this morning I believe that we will gain some important aspects of the Christian life, capturing ways that we can be God-honoring disciples of the Lord Jesus. As we consider the Christian life this morning, uh, I would ask for the chance to pose three very important questions to you. The first question is, when you enter a season of providential pain, and let me break into that question and say that if you have never entered a season of providential pain, get ready, because you will. And so if you enter a season of providential pain, do you, do you question God? Or do you call upon God? When you encounter emotional, physical, or spiritual turmoil, 
Do you shout at God or do you surrender to his sovereign plan? And the third question is that in your daily life, do you consider yourself to be a man-centered person or are you a God-centered person? That is to say, are you focused on me, myself, and I? Or are you focused on the great I am? I want to direct your attention this morning to the, the mindset and the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe that what we will discover this morning is that the mindset and the mission of Jesus will shape our worldview. The mindset and the mission of Jesus will so uh, massage our worldview so that at the end of the day, we will have the ability, the inclination, the desire, and the know-how to live the Christian life all for the glory of God. Keeping in mind that it is only the gospel that enables us to live the Christian life. And I hope you hear that theme over and over and over again. That the only way we can live for God, that the only way we can glorify God, that the only way we can walk as disciples of Jesus is to be fueled by the gospel. Last week you will recall that Jesus helped his followers, he helped his disciples understand what I coined the paradoxical path of discipleship. Today, we turn our attention first to the mindset of Jesus. Look with me back in verse 27. As Jesus makes his way to the cross, as he really stands under the shadow of the cross, he says, now my soul is troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. As we discover the mindset of Jesus, I want to have you see this morning that the mindset of Jesus summarized is this, is that he had a God-centered mindset. You hear the language at Christ's fellowship over and over and over again of, of what it means to be a God-centered person. You hear it when you meet together for a Bible study with your friends. You hear it, Young people hear it in youth group. My suspicion is that the children in jam hear about what it means to be a God-centered person. These are not mere words that we parrot. Rather, we truly desire at Christ Fellowship to have this God-centered mindset as the Lord Jesus had and continues to have. I want you to see now as we look at this passage three important aspects of our Lord's God-centered mindset. And the first emerges in verse 27. I want you to see that the mindset of Jesus, his God-centered mindset is something that actually, first of all, may surprise you. He was disturbed. This God-centered Savior was disturbed. Now, my soul is troubled, he says. The word disturbed comes from a unique Greek word that means to be troubled, as the ESV translates it. It means literally to be, to be stirred up. It means to be agitated. And as I meditated on that word, as I studied that word, when Jesus said, my soul is troubled, I asked myself, well, what is it that especially young people would understand? in order to convey the true meaning of what it means to be troubled. As Jesus stands in the very shadow of the cross, why would he say he's, he's troubled and what does it mean? And the first thing that popped in my mind was a word picture. To be troubled is something like this. It's like, that just kind of bugs you, right? Just, right? 
That's literally what it means to be troubled. It means to be shaken. It means to be stirred. It means to be just, Jesus is just trouble at the very core of his being. The word comes from another word that means to cause a riot or to throw into confusion. The actual term is associated with the concept of of death and denial and dread and dismay and distress. And Jesus experienced the weighty effects of all of these words as he makes his way to the cross. Now, from time to time, and many of you will know what I'm referring to, especially in an intense political climate. Protesters in America will exercise their First Amendment rights to free speech. But as we have seen over the last several weeks, we will see that whether the protesters are well-intentioned or not, is sometimes these protesters turn ugly. And in other cases, we'll see, and you remember several years ago in in Seattle, where a riot ensued and and looting took place in downtown Seattle. And I don't know about you, but when I watch a riot on TV, or if I watch a, a political protest that gets out of hand, where people are yelling at one another and shaking their fists at one another, I don't know if you're like me, but it it kind of troubles me. It, 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 it makes me nervous because you wonder what's going to happen next. It's a, a punch is thrown or a gun is drawn or someone runs to, to assault another person. Every fist that is thrown, every foul word that is uttered, every profane sign that is raised cause the onlooker to look upon that grisly scene with an attitude that is troubled, deeply troubled. Now, I want to take a few minutes and have you focus in on this word, or on this word in verse 27, when Jesus said that he is troubled, and have you see how it is translated in several other passages. You don't need to turn there. Hold your your Bible to John chapter 12, and let me walk through some passages that translate the same Greek word troubled in several other passages. First in Matthew 2 verse 3. This is the story about King Herod. And the Bible tells us that he was troubled. And it says that all of Jerusalem was troubled with him. In Matthew chapter 14, the disciples saw Jesus walking on the sea. Can you imagine? You see this this man walking on the sea. And the scripture says they were terrified. That comes from the same word, that is translated troubled in John chapter 12, verse 27. This is what Jesus is experiencing. He is not only troubled, we see a, a Savior who is, who is cut to the quick as he stands in the shadow of the cross. In John chapter 13, verse 21, we see that Jesus was troubled in his spirit. And he testified as he sat with the disciples. He said, truly, truly, one of you will betray me. In Matthew chapter 26, the same mindset surfaces as we find Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Bible says, after taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Well, 
Why is Jesus experiencing this inner turmoil? Why is he so troubled? Well, we've answered that question because very shortly he will hang upon the cross. And it will not be just any ordinary cross. This will be a cross that he will hang upon as a substitutionary sacrifice. He will absorb the white hot wrath of God the Father and he will bear the weight of every sin from every person who will ever believe throughout all of human history. And so the first thing we see about the the God-centered mindset of our Savior is that he was disturbed. I want you to move further and look also in verse 27 and notice that he was also a determined Savior. He was He was not only troubled, he was not only disturbed, he was determined. Look at verse 27. After he says he's troubled, he says, But for this, mark this word, purpose, I have come to this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. And we know that Jesus, the God-man, he knew exactly what God the Father had ordained in eternity past. Jesus, as the God-man, knew what the future held. Yes, he was disturbed, as we've seen as the God-man. But he was also determined. I would argue he was deeply determined to obey the Father. That is to say, he was a God-centered person. And so we find our Lord is, is standing in the shadow of the cross. He is not only disturbed, he is determined. But there is a third aspect that emerges also in our passage. Notice as it occurs in verse 28. Jesus was a person of desire, of desire. And this desire emerges in verse 28 where he says, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. John Piper says that the entire ministry of Jesus was aimed at this, to make the Father look glorious. The aim of the Lord Jesus Christ was to make the Father look glorious. This indeed was the consuming passion of Jesus. This is what occupied his thoughts. This is what motivated him. You see, Jesus had a a God-centered mindset as he stood in the shadow of the cross. And I believe he teaches us some very, very important lessons as we face our own set of obstacles as we live the Christian life. Notice a few of those lessons with me. First of all, I want you to see that a God-centered person is no stoic. You say, I have no idea what that means. A God-centered person is no stoic. You see, sometimes I think in the Christian life, we get the idea that we either sit and soak, that is, we just sit and just just take all the blows, and we have no emotional response to those blows. And the Bible says exactly the opposite. The Bible actually tells us that a God-centered person feels emotion. A God-centered person feels pain. And so when a loved one dies, when we experience physical pain or mental pain or emotional pain, or pain as an American, looking at the, the direction of our country, we, we are not simple stoics. We don't stand aloof and allow the pain to pass us by. Rather, we follow the model of Jesus. 
Jesus teaches us that a God-centered person wrestles with sickness and death. A God-centered person wrestles with adversity. A God-centered person battles with all that that plagues us in this sin-infested world. That is to say, a God-centered person is not detached. He lives in the real world. He has real problems. God-centered people have real pain and real struggles. Secondly, I want you to see that a God-centered person is determined to obey God. A God-centered person is determined to obey God. Here is what I have been struck with as I studied this passage. A God-centered person says this, My focus is not on myself. My focus is not on my circumstances. My focus is on the living God. So let me ask you, how easy is it to focus on yourself? I'd be the first to tell you, it's really, really easy. It's really, really convenient, and it's really tempting to focus everything on myself. And I know this, when I focus on myself, I am not pleasing God, I am not obeying God. Many of you have heard the story. Some of you read about it in the bulletin a few weeks ago. It's an example of a God-centered woman who I have never met, but she and her children lost their husband several weeks ago. These are folks who were faithful missionaries. And here is what Jennifer writes within hours of losing her husband. And I remember when I read these words... I was cut to the quick. I could not believe how God-centered this woman was and is. Here's what Jennifer writes. Today, Jesus called Todd home from the work he was doing, planting and harvesting in Togo. In the mystery of his will, God chose this day to reward Todd with the unequaled joy of heaven. Now, if you weren't paying attention, this is a woman who just lost her husband. If you're just waking up, this is a woman who, whose husband just died with little children. And she says, now my husband is rewarded with the unequal joy of heaven. She continues, this is the promise of God that we as believers cling to through tears and pain. My heart is overwhelmed with unspeakable grief. She is no stoic. For myself and our boys and our extended family, our spiritual family and the Hospital of Hope team, I cling only to the gospel and to the certain hope of our salvation through Jesus Christ. Even in my pain, I am confident that our sacrifice, that Todd's sacrifice was worth it. I believe that the Great Commission is a cause worth dying for. And in the midst of my grief, I fix my eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of my faith. Here is a woman who is enduring unbearable grief. Yet despite her grief, she chooses a path of God-centeredness. She embraces a a God-centered mindset. I remember several years ago, I... I heard John Piper talking about the times he has interviewed potential candidates to come and serve on his pastoral team. And from time to time, someone, as they would fly to Minneapolis, would ask Pastor Piper, if I bring my family here, will they be safe? 
Well, those of you that read anything by John Piper know that is not the right thing to say to him. Because asking whether or not my family will be safe is not one of the first questions I should ask. I should not be asking, is my family going to be safe? I should be asking, is this a place I can honor and glorify the living God? I want you to think about the challenges that lay before you today. I want you to think about what God expects from you. What would God-centered obedience look like in a troubled marriage? What would God-centered obedience look like in a troubled relationship or a troubled friendship? What would God-centered obedience look like in a dispute that you have with your neighbor? What would God-centered obedience look like in a legal matter? The book of 1 Corinthians is very clear. If you're a Christian and you're in a dispute, dispute with your neighbor and you're taking your neighbor to court, a God-centered response, God-centered obedience would be to drop the lawsuit. That is God-centered obedience. And so how can you please God despite a painful and a horrible situation? The third lesson I see that emerges from this passage is that a God-centered person fears God. A God-centered person fears God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. I'm reading a book entitled The Forgotten Fear, and the subtitle is Where Have All the God-Fearers Gone? by Al Martin. And Pastor Martin says, If the fear of God is the climate in which we are to pursue practical godliness, what constitutes a major area of concern in the attainment of practical godliness? It is how we conduct ourselves in our interpersonal relationships. He goes on to say that the godliness that leaves you nasty with your boss, and I say godliness in quotes, the quote-unquote godliness that leaves you nasty with your boss, churlish with your wife, bossy with your husband, or snippy with your mom and dad, is not godliness at all. The godliness and holiness of the Bible are intensely practical things that show up clearly in the interactions with your deepest and most intimate human relationships, whether in the family, work, church, or school. And so you see what it means to be a God-centered man or a God-centered woman or a God-centered boy or girl is an intensely practical thing. This is the mindset of Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ is is one who was wrestling in the shadow of the cross, was the God-man who battled... In a world that was plagued with sin, he was troubled as he went to the foot of the cross, but he was a man of deep God-centeredness. Second, I want you to see the mission of Jesus as it emerges in this passage. Look with me, beginning at verse 29. Now the crowd stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others had said an angel had spoken to him, and Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will enter the ruler of the world, or now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. It probably will not surprise you when we move to the mindset of Jesus, which is intensely God-centered, and then we move on to the mission of Jesus, 
when I tell you that his mission is intensely God-centered as well. You see, Jesus anticipated his glorification that was soon to come after he died on the cross and was raised from the dead three days later. I want you to see two aspects of this God-centered mission that emerge here. The first is the word judgment. The word judgment. And the judgment here is the judgment of this world who is Satan. The judgment of the ruler of this world, I should say, who is Satan. One commentator puts it like this, that he, as Jesus, not being limited by time as we are, saw this judgment as completed. The Son of God had not been sent into the world to judge the world. The world is self-condemned by its own unbelief. The Son had come to destroy the works of Satan, who as the prince of the world controlled the minds of men, producing unbelief. The world would be judged in the sense that Satan, the ruler of the world, would be ejected from his sphere of power. This is the judgment that emerges in this passage. But then I want you to move on to see this God-centered mission of Jesus in this word. It's the word salvation. The word salvation. As we consider the important matter of salvation, I want to have you look at two aspects of this salvation, and we'll spend the lion's share of our time here before we conclude. First, I want you to see the reality of salvation. Look with me again at verse 32. Here is the reality. Jesus says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth. The reality here that Jesus faces is, I will be lifted up. That is shorthand for, I will die on a cross. The event was certain in the mind of Christ. The event was certain in the mind of God. For the Bible teaches that Christ was foreknown when? He was foreknown before the creation of the world. You see, we need to resist the notion that some people embrace that the cross was a backup plan. The cross was plan B in the mind of God. No, the scriptures tell us it was plan A. First Peter tells us that he was foreknown before the foundation of the world was made, manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Now move with me to the all-important matter of the reality of salvation, to the realm of salvation, and this is where matters get a bit sticky. This is the matter that if you're in Veritas last week, we we began, I, I should say, I shouldn't blame this on you, I began to open up this can of worms. And I want to do my best to try to unpack this in a way that will make sense and, and also point us to the God-centeredness of Jesus. The realm of salvation is clear in verse 32. Here's what Jesus says. He says, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Just for fun. If you have any idea where this could lead or why this could be controversial, would you raise your hand just so I know I'm not crazy? You see where this is going, right? When I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. So we need to wrestle, first of all, with the little word, all. We need to wrestle with the word all. You might tend to incline to think that Jesus intends to save all 
people. After all, he says, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. And so some people would argue that this is a passage that teaches universalism. I would say at Christ Fellowship, uh, you know better than that. Do you not? Because universalism is never even hinted at in the Word of God. Nothing could be further from the truth. So if we rule out universalism, by the way, universalism is the theological notion that God will save everyone. He will save everyone. And there are pastors and theologians who are teaching this in droves today. Some of you remember the book that was published by Rob Bell several years ago entitled Love Wins. Now, Rob won't come out and say, I'm a universalist, but you read the book and, and you see that the indications are very strong, or at least they lean in that direction. So remember this. As we look at verse 32, remember that the Scripture emphatically denies that God will save everyone, I think we're all okay there. But the scripture also emphatically denies that God has chosen everyone. Here's what the word of God teaches with with crystal clear precision. That in eternity past, God the Father chooses some. Listen to Ephesians 1.4. Even as he chose us, that is God the Father, in Him, before the, the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Second Timothy 1.9 says that God saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace. Notice, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Now, adults would say that was a, in eternity past. Children would say, that was a long time ago, and that would be accurate. God gave some grace in eternity past. Romans eight twenty nine and 30 says that for those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified... He glorified. Second Thessalonians chapter 2.13 says, We ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. I love Acts 13.48 that says, When the Gentiles heard this, that is to say that now the Gentiles were included in God's salvation story. You see, you recall that in the, in the days of the Old Testament, God set his affection on whom? One people group called the Jewish nation. He set his affection on the Jews. And we get to the point of Acts 13 and something happens. I like to call it the, the Jewish Gentile shift. When God turns his attention to the Gentiles, who are the Gentiles? Anyone who's not a Jew. And the Gentiles hear that now they are included in God's salvation story. And they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. That is to say, for all those that God the Father chose in eternity past, that day they believed. Jesus emphatically states in Matthew chapter 22, Many are called, but few are chosen. And so we have to come back again to verse 32 and, and wrestle with this little word, all. 
the word all. Now, our Arminian friends are quick to point out that this verse is very clearly affirming that God is drawing all people, and you can see where this is going. The Arminians teach that God draws all people, and that it is through the agency of my free will that I need to reach out and take that gift that God puts before me. We must respond using the power of free will. But there's a big problem with the Arminian interpretation. And I am not so naive to think that there are no Arminians in the sanctuary today. So let me say it humbly and graciously that nothing could be further from the truth. Sinners simply do not have the ability to come to Jesus. They are, as Paul says in Ephesians 2.1, spiritually dead. They are spiritually blind. They are spiritually deaf. They are, as Jesus said, spiritually enslaved to sin. They are spiritually incapacitated. I've said it oftentimes before that the sinner is not at the top of the water gurgling and gasping for breath and grabbing the life preserver that the Lord Jesus sends his way as the captain of the ship. Rather, the sinner is at the bottom of the ocean with duct tape. Spence, is that the best thing to put over someone's mouth? Duct tape over his mouth. Duct tape over his or her eyes. Duct tape over his or her ears. They're in a straitjacket at the bottom. And what's worse is they're dead. You must believe. The sinner says, nothing. Absolutely nothing. The sinner is dead. Steve Lawson says it this way. Jesus taught that it is absolutely impossible for spiritually dead sinners to exercise saving faith. They are marked by a volitional inability, having no free will with which to exercise faith toward Christ. He goes on to say, in no uncertain terms, Christ declared the bondage of the unregenerate human will. He announced that no man can come to him, meaning that no one can believe in him apart from a sovereign work of grace in his heart. Simply put, sinners apart from grace will not trust Jesus. Apart from grace, they won't believe in him. Apart from grace, they will not obey him. Apart from grace, they will not love him. Apart from grace, they will not come to him. Now, let's go back to verse 32. Are you still wrestling with the word all? You say, Pastor, you're not convincing me because Jesus says, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Some of us have been raised in a culture where we are taught that a word means what it means. All means all. World means world. Not quite so fast. Here in this particular passage, we are forced to choose between Two choices. Jesus either means all without exception, and I think we have eliminated that possibility. If Jesus teaches that all are saved without exception, that means the scripture falls flat, that God is rendered a liar, because there are a host of other scriptures that disagree with that. So here are the two options. All without exception, or, and I hope the light goes on for you, all without distinction. Read it again. He says, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. I hope the light goes on. What he means is, I will draw all people to myself. That is to say, all without distinction. 
One writer says the word all represents all classes of people. Jews, Gentiles, male, female, educated, uneducated, and so forth. The only people who are come to Jesus are those who are drawn sovereignly by God. John 6.44 is very clear in the teaching at this point, and we discussed this several months ago. It says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That word draw in chapter 6, verse 44, as well as John chapter 12, verse 32, comes from a Greek word that means to haul in or to lead by force. You see, God is in the business of drawing people sovereignly to himself. One writer puts it like this, contrary to popular sentiment, And I would say it's vast sentiment, especially in America. Contrary to popular sentiment, there is a real sense in which sinners are not attracted to the cross, but dragged to the cross. Such is the deadness of the human spirit. Those who come to Christ do so because the Father brings them to him. And I would add, it is a gracious drawing Thomas Watson says it is a powerful drawing. The great Puritan of the 17th century said, God rides forth conquering in the chariot of the gospel. I like that. God rides forth conquering in the chariot of the gospel. He conquers the pride of the human heart. Now remember the sinner at the bottom of the ocean. What needs to happen to that sinner is his pride needs to be conquered. His will needs to be conquered. And Watson says he makes the will which stood out as a royal fort to yield and stoop to his grace. He makes the stony heart bleed. Oh, it is a mighty call. It's not only a powerful calling, it is an irresistible calling. Watson says the effectual call is mighty and powerful. God puts forth a a divine energy, nay, a, a kind of omnipotence. It is such a powerful call that the will of man has no power effectually to resist. He goes on to say that Jesus Christ died to save all kinds of people, including both Jews and Gentiles, and that Jesus announced that his death would draw all people to him. Now we know who the all includes, all without distinction. Christ died for the sins of the elect of God from among both Jews and Gentiles. And so this is a sovereign calling. It's a gracious calling. It's a powerful calling. It's an irresistible calling. And it is, in fact, a sovereign calling. You remember the words of Jonah, chapter 2, verse 9, when he said, salvation belongs to whom? To the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. I want to close this morning by looking at a few points of application. What can we learn specifically about this mission-minded Jesus, this Savior who was and is God-centered? The first thing I want you to see is that a a God-centered person views life through a wide-angle lens. This person views life through a wide-angle lens. Something very interesting happened in Veritas this morning as I was lamenting about some of the, oh, shall I say, grievous events that occurred over the last couple of years in the life of Christ Fellowship. And and, uh, a dear friend came up and and said, well, Pastor, you, you answered why it happened in your prayer. 
And ultimately, God allows everything that happens so that he would receive the glory and so that his people would be conformed into the image of his son. That is what my friend likely would refer to as having a wide-angle lens view of the world. You see what happens to us and what happens to me? We get focused. Ask Steve Nims. Ask BJ. Men who serves as the chairman of the board and they watch me as pastor going, what is going on here? Why? When? Who? How? What did we do? How, how, how did this happen? Well, I needed to move from having a narrow focus to a wide-angle lens focus. 2 Corinthians 4.18 says that we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. The things that are unseen are eternal. And so we, we expand our worldview by having a wide-angle view of reality. The second thing, a God-centered person, it probably won't surprise you when I say that a God-centered person is intent on obeying God. He or she is intent on obeying God. The consuming passion of Jesus was to obey the Father. That's what was on his mind. His consuming passion was to glorify the Father, to obey the Father. And so this morning, we have seen this played out in, in great detail, where we have seen the mindset of Jesus and the mission of Jesus, which at the end of the day, I believe, challenges me and it challenges you to reevaluate our perspective. And so we ask this question, are, are you and I focused on the temporal things? Do we have the, the microscope out or are we focused on the big picture? Are you focused on what, what you can accomplish or what God can accomplish through you? You see, if you have the mindset and the mission as Jesus had that it is Christ who dwells within me. Jesus' mindset was to glorify God and our mindset should be the same. We glorify the great God of the universe. What is your perspective now? as you stand on the other side of the cross. I want to show you the vision statement. It's a vision statement that we should probably look at more frequently. The vision statement says that our vision is to be a high-commitment, high-grace family of Christ followers who strive to live gospel-driven and God-centered lives, equipped to reach the community and the nations with the saving message of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we leave that statement up for a few moments before we come to the Lord's table, I want to ask, by way of practical application, how is the Holy Spirit nudging you? Have you ever experienced that before? Where one word is going to stand out, and for you, it might be that very first highlighted word, high commitment. I would be willing to argue that many of you this morning are getting nudged by the third member of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, and he's saying, Hey, buddy, I'm not sure if the Holy Spirit calls you buddy or not, or sir or ma'am, it's time for you to get involved. If I'm to embrace the, the vision statement at Christ Fellowship, if I'm to be a high commitment person, that means I'm going to start being faithful in my church attendance. I'm going I'm to start getting educated. I'm going to start getting equipped. I'm going to really plug in. I'm going to use my spiritual gifts to help in this local church family for kingdom-minded purposes. Maybe being a high grace kind of a person stands out to you this morning. Perhaps you struggle with being nitpicky or judgmental, poking fun at other people or 
holding them to a standard that they can never fulfill? I would ask you this morning, what are the steps you need to take to become a high grace kind of a person? And when this statement came together on the planning team, you need to think about this with me. High commitment and high grace. Those are two very unique things. I believe that we can't have one without the other. We can't have only high grace without high commitment. We can't have high commitment without high grace. We put those things together, and in my mind, what that brings is a liberated church family. That is a liberated church family. Or perhaps the phrase gospel-driven or the phrase gospel-centered stands out to you. How can you be a more gospel-driven person? How can you be a more a God-centered person? A person who has probably taught me more about the gospel than anyone else is Tim Keller. And Tim Keller says this. He says, religion makes us proud of what we have done. The gospel makes us proud of what Jesus has done. Uh, I didn't have Nathan's permission to share this, but he told me a few days ago that a, uh, a friend at school asked him out of the blue what his dad did for work, what he did for a living. He said, my dad's a pastor. And this girl said, wow, your dad must be really religious. <laughs> and what do you think I thought about that? Didn't like it. I hope you don't consider yourself to be a religious person. Remember, Keller says, religion makes us proud for what we have done. The gospel makes us proud for what Jesus has done. If you walk away today and that's the only thing you remember, mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. Perhaps you realize this morning you need to be better equipped, which is the final highlighted word. Perhaps you've never been to Veritas or men, you've never, you've never come to Iron Man. Or women, you've never been to women's Bible study. I can tell you story after story after story who people come to these various ministries. They are equipped, they are edified, they are strengthened in the Christian life. Or perhaps you realize that you need to get out and share the gospel. And you're scared to death. I think the simple antidote for that is just to get out and share the gospel. And just to tell people about the Lord Jesus Christ. See, Jesus was and always will be God-centered. Oh, that God would give each of us a God-centered mindset and a God-centered mission. Let me say that I think the days ahead for Christ Fellowship are filled with excitement and filled with fruit. I was sharing with the class this morning that next week we will baptize. I told the class I lost track, which indeed I have. Eight or nine or ten or eleven or maybe more. I don't know how many people are going to be baptized. Um, that's more people that have been baptized over the past four years put together in one week. Now, I'm not very good at math. I'm horrible at math. That's pretty good. That's pretty exciting. That tells me that God is at work in this family of believers. So let me encourage you. Grab onto that vision statement and become a person who is committed to God-centeredness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the example of your son. And Lord Jesus, we affirm uh, that you obeyed the Father from all eternity, and you will obey him to all eternity. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the message of the gospel that liberates sinners who are at the bottom of the ocean whose eyes and ears and mouth and hands and feet are, are enchained. They're in duct tape 
They can't move. They have, the sinners have no ability apart from grace. We thank you that you have given grace to many people today. If you're here today and that you recognize that you're a sinner, you're a sinner at the bottom of the ocean, and you have heard the gospel message that the Lord Jesus Christ came uh, to live a life that you could never live, and he died a death that you deserve to die. And you know that you need to be forgiven of all your sins. Would you cry out to him, God, I realize that I am a sinner. I realize that I am under your wrath. And I accept all that Jesus accomplished both in his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Would you cry out to God and ask him to save you? Ask him to forgive you of all your sins, past, present, and future. We give you the glory in advance. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.